0: turn in a bible to psalm 53 Uh, if you have one of those black ones in the pews this is on page 561 Uh, this is we're getting near the end of our summer in the psalms uh, series i know that uh, if you have children in school like we do that your summer is already over Uh, In fact, I think our children were very excited to be back at school. They were home for about four days all summer, and every day they said, we're so bored. Uh, And so they're glad to be back, and we're glad to be to have you here with us. Uh, So if you would turn to Psalm 53, and please stand with me as I read God's word for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would open our eyes and your heart to your word, that you would speak to us. That you would encounter us here, Lord, that we would see you, and we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Psalm fifty-three, with the title "There is no one, there is none who does good." The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none. Who does good? God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now, probably the most remarkable thing about Psalm 53, uh, you probably haven't caught this unless you've recently read through all of the Psalms, is that it is almost exactly identical to Psalm chapter 14, as in like the first four verses are exactly the same. As you, If you read Psalm 14 and you sw- flipped over to Psalm 53, you would think that somebody made a mistake and just copied and pasted like one too many times kind of like when you're telling a story to somebody and and they're looking at you with their eyes kind of glazed over and you're not sure if you've told them that story before or maybe you're not telling it very well like you don't quite know um, that's sort of this idea that maybe sometimes we get about why why again like why would the the editor the composer of the song insert something that is so strikingly familiar to something that's already there. Now, there are a few differences in Psalm 14 through uh, in in Psalm 53, like verse five is completely different. And we'll talk about that just a little bit. But we could ask that question, why is this here? Why is it here again? Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, hey, this isn't a copy of the 14th Psalm, which is amended and revised by a different hand, a foreign hand. It's another edition by the same author, emphasized in certain parts and rewritten for another purpose. You may have heard this before, but anytime we find something in Scripture that is repeating itself, that repetition is intentional. It's on purpose. It's to give emphasis or a special reminder to, hey, listen to this. Right? That, that child that comes up to you and says, mommy, do they ever just stop at one mommy? It's mommy, 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 mommy. You know, like if you get to seven, maybe you know that there's an emergency, right? Like this is for emphasis. There's something really important going on. And also to help us to remember. You may have heard this phrase, remember, remember the the 5th of November. Anyone heard that before? I have no idea what that's referencing. But I know the phrase, right? And so sometimes just that little repetition can help us keep things in our mind. I do know what it's about now because I googled it and I read a little bit on Wikipedia so I don't know if my information is accurate but at least I have some sort of idea of what that means. So Psalm 53 is what we might call a rewritten Psalm of David. Uh, Written at at a, a similar circumstance but a different time in his life is what we find before. See both of these were songs written by the same guy at different periods of time kind of like how you might have the same conversation with God at different times in your life. You might be praying that same prayer almost verbatim. If you've got young children at home, one of the challenges for us is to is to get them to think about the things that they say. Well, it's not as if David is stuck in a rut and can't have the words, right? But he's going back to a period in his life where he knows what he's already saying. He knows what he wants to say, and and this is referencing a particular circumstance or a particular time in his life. Now, a lot of the Psalms have these little um, headings or titles above them, which have been in the Psalm book for thousands of years. They may not necessarily have been written by David, but other authors or the editors that compiled these things together who put them in a particular order. The Psalms is actually three different books, book one, two, and three uh, divided up and given to us as songs to sing To God in worship. Now, Psalm 52 has the reference or heading. We talked about this last week. It refers to a story or a narrative out of 1 Samuel 22 when Doeg the Edomite told King Saul where he could find David and his men hiding. If you weren't here last week, you can go back and, and read that. We won't go over that all again. So that's Psalm 52. Now, Psalm 54 has an inscription which references when the Ziphites went about and told Saul, is, David, is not David hiding among us? This also refers to a narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 26. So we have 1 Samuel 22, we have 1 Samuel 23, we have 1 Samuel 26. So on either end of our psalm, that's 52 and 54. And so right here in Psalm 53, we get sort of a little hint about what this might be referencing. 1 Samuel 25 tells us a story about a man named Nabal. Now, for you Hebrew scholars out there, the word Nabal is translated into what word? Fool. Okay, fool. So here we have the fool says in his heart in the opening line of our psalm, and this actually is to take us back to 1 Samuel 25, where we get a story of a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next little bit. But just to summarize a little bit, David is is God's anointed king. He's not quite the king yet. There already is a king. His name is Saul, and and he's not the most, uh, how should we put it, stable guy, okay? He's been anointed by God as well. God chose him from among all the people of Israel to be the king. He looks like a king. He acts like a king. He's big. He's strong. He's scary. He's the kind of guy that you would look at and go, yeah, that's, that's a king, just to look at him. And yet, because of his sin, God had rejected this king, and he chose another king. Now, typically, when you think of kings, how is the next king chosen? Well, they're born into that family. But God has not only rejected Saul, he's actually rejected this king, kingly line. So he chooses another king, a man named David. You know David's story a little bit. David's not a guy that you would think is going to be a king. He's the youngest of seven brothers. Uh, his father completely forgets about him when he, he comes to this feast and, 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 and is asked to bring all of his sons before the Lord. And, and David was left at home doing what? He was watching the sheep. Now that's what you did with somebody that you didn't really care about that much. Right? It was a big responsibility, but, but it wasn't as if he was important in his family. And so David and, and comes up to visit his brothers. They're at war. And there's this big giant. He's got a name. What's his name? Goliath. Everybody's terrified of Goliath except for this young boy, David, who says, hey, if no one else is going to fight him, I guess I'll do it. And he goes down and he picks up some rocks and he puts them in his little satchel and he carries it out and uses his slingshot and he takes down the giant. And now he's leading God's people in battle as a teenager And people are singing songs about him, saying things like, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So even as a young man, he's already got this incredible reputation that God is doing something special with David. And now Saul has gotten jealous. He's hunting after David. He's encamped out in the wilderness. And David and his men, he's got 600 with him. They're getting hungry. Now, if you have 600 men, and these are called actually mighty men, so they're not just like your regular guys like me. They'd probably be a little more like Brian, okay? Brian, why not you stand up? <laughs> if you were going to pick one of us to fight, which one would you pick? Right, you pick me and not Brian. <laughs> and so David's got these men. They're with him in the wilderness, and, and they're they're out. They're kind of hiding um, in, in and amongst the trees, and there's a man named Nabal, and he's a very wealthy man. This is what it says about him. In uh, verse 2 of chapter 25, this is First Samuel. There was a man in Moen whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. So now, I'm not much of a farmer, but I think anytime you can number your animals in the thousands, you're doing pretty well, right? And so he's got this massive herd of livestock and they are out in the wilderness about where David's men are he was shearing his sheep in Carmel at verse three the name of this man was Nabal and the name of his wife was Abigail the woman that's the wife Abigail was discerning and beautiful but the man was harsh and badly behaved he was a Calebite So we have this wealthy fool of a man named Nabal, and we have his beautiful, discerning wife, Abigail. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and and David said to the young man, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So here's David propositioning Nabal, and what he's saying is, hey, we've been living among you. We've not taken anything from you, and we're coming on a feast day at a time of worship, a time of celebration, and all we're asking for is that we can join you at your table. Now, if myself and 600 of my closest friends showed up at your house and asked for a place at your table, you might be a little bit alarmed. But remember that David and his men, and what he's saying is really we could have taken anything we wanted at any time, and we didn't. And obviously you're a wealthy man, right? It's not going to take thousands of your livestock to feed my hundreds of men. So would you please invite us in? Now, this is a culture of honor. It was honored to have someone come into your house. This is David, the, God's anointed king, God's chosen one. This, he's like a, a, a superhero come to life. That people are singing songs about in the villages saying, hey, can we come and eat at your table? If you were a wise man, you would say, well, absolutely. Give me some time to prepare. Nabal was not a wise man. Nabal lives up to his name. His name means fool, and I, I feel sorry for him because of his parents. But maybe they had some inclination of what it was that he was going to be like. Instead, this is What Nabal says, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, verse 10, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Uh, This is not Nabal saying politely, uh, no, thank you. This is actually an insult to David. This is Nabal saying to David, I don't know who you are. Your, main, your name means nothing to me. Your father means nothing to me. How do I know that you're not just one of these people who's deserted their responsibilities as a, as a warrior? And, and, and maybe you're trying to shirk your, your, your paying privileges. Who do you think you are? You are nothing. And we hear it this way, Nabal saying, you know, what's mine is mine, and this my bread and my water and my meat, and these are my men, and mine, 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 mine. And, And to us, this comes across as probably a bit selfish and spoiled. But there's an even greater offense in Nabal's response. See, Nabal is using the language of shame, in a culture that places extreme value on honor. Your name is nothing. Your father is nothing. You come from nowhere. You are a criminal. There's no greater shame than that, which which helps us to explain David's response to this response. David's men came back to him. In verse 13, it says, David said to his men, Every man Strap on his sword. That's a big uh oh for Nabal. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. See, David hasn't just been denied his request, he has been publicly shamed, and he decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands. Now, I'm not very good at math. That's why I became a pastor, okay? Um, but if I was good at math, I might say that, that, that you know, for all of the thousands of livestock that David or that, that Nabal has, you're, you're probably going to get, what, about um, five sheep and two goats a man if you go down and just take everything that Nabal has. But But David isn't going to stop with just plundering the livestock. He's now got some murderous thoughts in his mind. You haven't just told me no and denied me. You've disrespected my name and my dad and my pla- the place of my origin. And, and so what we see is that he gears up for battle to go down and his plan is to kill everybody. He's going to wipe out all of Nabal's men, everyone in Nabal's house, everyone that he encounters. That is David's intention. And now here's when we meet This woman named Abigail. But one of the young men, verse 14, told Abigail, Naval's wife, Hey, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet those men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We didn't miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Okay, here's the servant going, Nabal is a fool. These guys have been among us. They've cared for us. They've protected us. This request is very reasonable. And yet because how quickly, not only did he deny the request, he put shame on David's name. Because of that, we know we're in trouble. And Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves, and two skins of wine. Now think of a skin of wine. This is not your little puny Costco box wine, okay? This is what about um, thirty liters per se, okay? This is a big amount. So they take some prepared sheep and some grain, and 100 clusters of and 200 cakes of figs, and she puts them on donkeys, and she sends them up in the direction of David and says, hey, you guys go that way as quick as you can. We've got to try to get this figured out. And I'm going to come back bef- behind you. And she doesn't tell her husband, because what is her husband going to do? Well, he's a fool. He's going to mess it up. He's going to tell her no. He's going to do something. He's going to say something, and he's going to make this situation Worse, and so she goes and acts, and and as David comes and meets these people, David had said before, surely in vain have I guarded all this that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed and all that belonged to him, and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by the morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Basically, David's saying they're all going to die. That was his plan. And when Abigail finds David, she runs up and she gets down on his feet and bows on the ground. And she says, hey, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in my ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow in the ball for as his name is, so he is. Hey, he's got the name of a fool and that's what he is. Please put whatever you want to put on him on me. And now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Hey, let all your enemies be fools. She's actually offering a blessing upon David. Abigail recognized who he was. Abigail knew who his name was was and what that meant she knew the place that he was going to have the place of prominence in the history of israel and she intervenes and she offers a blessing to david and david relents now david's response wasn't going to be right of course it would have also been wrong and, and and sinful and david even sort of acknowledges that in his response to her But remember, he felt ashamed and disgraced, and he had to do something about it. See, Nabal the fool had said, I am all that I need. In verse 36, jumping ahead here, Abigail came back to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him all these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. See, Nabal the fool says, I am all that I need. Nabal the fool says, "What mine, what's mine belongs to me. The, Nabal the fool says, hey, I don't really care that I've just disgraced this mighty man and his mighty men. Let's just eat and drink and be merry. Let's worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Who knows what might happen tomorrow, right? And tomorrow we might die. And guess what happens to him? He dies. And we turn back to Psalm chapter 53 with this in our minds. It opens, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, according to a recent Gallup poll, 74% of Americans Agree with the statement that there is a God. Now, I'm not sure how that strikes you. If you think, wow, that's really high. Or if you think maybe that's really low. Um, Just a few years ago, back in 2004, 90% of Americans agreed with that statement. Um, But it's not as if 26% say that they disagree. There's there's a solid 12% of people that just answer this question, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there is a God. And honestly, I, actually 14%, I, I admire those people who are willing to voice that doubt. And there's 12% of people that would say emphatically, there is no God. So there are certainly intellectual and theoretical atheists out there. There's people that like to engage in debate, that, that might like to, to ask you lots of hard questions and love to argue about the existence of God. But quite honestly, I haven't found that many of these people. Yeah, and if you encounter one of those, uh, we can give you some resources. You know, you can, you can learn some apologetic arguments, the, the cosmological argument or the ar- argument from design. Um, but to be honest, I found that very few people who hear an apologetic argument will turn around and say, you know what, that was right. I believe in God now. Right, those, those arguments actually do more for us to help us be sure in our faith when people ask us questions than they are and actually leading other people Christ. And notice that the fool, he doesn't say with his mouth, there is no God. How does he say it? He says it with his heart. You see, the fool is not necessarily a confessing atheist. This isn't something that they necessarily verbally vocalize. But this is something, a dialogue that happens within. You know, what is the heart? The heart is the inner man. This is the soul, the mind, the the center of our being. And it's it's here that this conversation is taking place, right in here, where we we start to wonder, is there a God? Which then becomes a statement, there is no God. It's not something that necessarily we're going to hear on the lips of people around us. So many of us live sort of this functionally atheistic life that this describes. where in our hearts, we're constantly wondering and questioning and even accusing there is no God. I start to think everything is up to me. I decide my own purpose. I get to determine my meaning in life. I have to look out for myself. I have to care for my family. I have to work and strive and provide because if I don't do it, who's going to do it? This life is chaos. The world is crazy. We have a middle school in our house. Things just got crazy this week. There's no order. There's no design. There's no purpose. There's no reason for so many things now. There's no beauty. There's no hope in the world. That's the type of things that we start thinking, not just middle schoolers, but we start to think that there too. See, a heart without God might say outwardly there is no God or there is a God. But inwardly, it it believes it's all up to me. See, many of us who grew up in this culture of Christianity are probably more functionally atheistic than we like to think. Because when it comes down to our schedules and our lives and how we run our businesses and personal affairs, how we live day to day, we honestly don't look all that different from the people around us who don't claim to have faith. Some of us are just kind of living that life of Pascal's wager. Where, you know, Pascal said, hey, if there is a God and you believe, sorry, if there, if there is no God and I do believe, At the end of my life, I've really lost nothing, right? But if there is a God and I don't believe, then I'm in trouble. It's going to be tragic. That that line of thinking doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence in us. It doesn't really live us to lead a full and joyful Christian life, does it? It kind of leads us to this life where we're always sort of towing that line, trying to figure out how much can I get away with? and still follow God. It's that that teenage statement, how far is too far, right? How much can I do and still be kind of considered in? See, in The Weight of Glory, author C.S. Lewis wrote, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And honestly, how many... Christians do we know who are trying to live that moderately important life we're just trying to add something on to what we already do you know yes sure God is real I'll agree to that statement statement and yes maybe the Bible is true but what I really want what I really want I want to fit in I want to have friends I want well-behaved kids I want to live comfortably And, and I'll try to be a good person along the way how many of us are kind of functionally atheistic in that way. And the problem, and David sees it here, and he kind of calls it out, the problem is that we aren't and we can't be good. All right, David says there's no such thing as a good person. And that's one of our favorite things to say about people, right? Hey, that, those are good people over there. Someone treats you nice, they let you cut in front of them in line at Costco because you've got one thing and they've got a, a basket of things. All of a sudden, that person's the nicest person in the world. I know nothing about them before, and I'll never see them again, but that's a good person right before they let me they let me cut. David says none of us are good, that each of us are corrupt, that means marred or spoiled that that we are doing abominable iniquity, which is detestable, repulsive and just acts of injustice and, and you might be thinking there's no way you know I'm not a saint but but that's too far. But the reality is that scripture tells us that this is who we are. And we need to be told this because we have a really hard time seeing this in ourselves. The ironic thing is that we have a really easy time seeing this in other people, right? Now, the longer you live with somebody, uh, raise your hand if you've been married in this room before. Anyone been married over 20 years? Uh, A good bit of you. I'm guessing... The, the thoughts that you have about your spouse are probably different now than they were when you started. Now, how does something, how do relationships start out? It's, it's this way, that everything the other person does is sort of cute and whimsical and magical, right? But then those things become idiosyncrasies. And then they become peculiar. And then they become strange. And then they become weird. And then they become infuriating and annoying and wrong. And those things that once caused us, that, w- that once we called quirky, now cause us to think murderous thoughts. <laughs> like, like this, if he breathes with his mouth open one more time, it will be the last breath he ever takes. <laughs> I've heard people say this. I may have thought this myself about people. See, we see, the, we see that in others. It doesn't take a whole lot of convincing to think that other people are bad. But it's also true in ourselves. See, we don't do good for goodness sake, like the song says. When we act good, even in the most seemingly altruistic ways, it's for us. Right? So other people might notice us. So that we might feel good. So we might satisfy a guilty conscience that we have. See, Isaiah the prophet says it this way in chapter 64. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. See, when you are unclean, then everything you do will be tainted with your uncleanness. Now, if you've ever been out with friends to a nice restaurant and you were about to to have a meal and you enter into the bathroom and you happen to notice that your waiter has walked out of the stall and headed back to the kitchen without washing their hands. And now you go back to the table and a moment later your food arrives. It no longer matters how good that food looks, does it? It no longer matters how great it smells. It no longer matters how much that chef prepared your meal because in your mind, you know, what? That's tainted. I cannot eat that. You know, you've lost your appetite and you're going to find it. You're going to stop at McDonald's on your way home. When our hearts are unclean, everything we touch is unclean. The theological term for that is total depravity, which just means that because we're unclean, not, not, not that everything about us is as unclean as it could be, but that everything we touch is marred by our sin, like that plate of food. So even my good or my righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are polluted and corrupted by my uncleanness if I haven't dealt with it. See, the truth is we aren't nearly as innocent or honorable As we would like to believe we are. David says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together, they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. See, no one searches for God on their own. There's not a single person who woke up this morning and thought, you know, there's something missing in my life. I think I'll just give my life to Jesus. Like, we don't come to that conclusion on our own. And David isn't just being dramatic here. You know, he uses this term, not one and all, and, and and he's not being hyperbolic. And honestly, he's not even letting himself off the hook. See, in 1 Samuel 25, how did David respond when he received the message about that fool, Naval? His first thought was what? Kill them all. Now, is that a godly response? The answer is no. Right? Is that the reaction of a wise and godly man? Now, he could have just gone and taken what he wanted. What was Nabal going to do? How could he have possibly stop him? And yet David wasn't going to be satisfied with that. He wanted revenge. He wanted to repay the disrespect that was shown to him to teach a lesson to him and anyone else who might be tempted to deny him in the future. And later, as David became king, he showed some more of these tendencies. He took what he wanted. He'd kill if he'd have to. In his inner man, David was a self-absorbed, covetous, raging, adulterous murderer. And yet, he was also called the man after God's own heart. Like, how do we reconcile these two statements? David says, has those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? Now, what this is saying here is do... It goes deeper than just a little bit of sin over here, right? Do we care so little about the plight of others that we can not only witness it, but actually contribute to their mistreatment just as easily as we can have our morning cup of coffee and toast? See, many people rightfully decry the plight of victims of abuse and trafficking, especially when they're portrayed in media and film as something that that that's something that bad people do over there. But, but what about the women and children who are victims of the pornography industry? See, our, our culture endorses wholeheartedly consuming people as normally as we might any other form of entertainment. See, and this, this is not just out there. It's not just what those bad people out there do. This is in here as well. According to a re- recent Barna research poll, 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors surveyed said that they regularly view pornography. And those were just the ones who would admit it. Statistically, this is a, a reality for many, many Christian men. How many of us like to point the finger out there and yet inside we're dying with this guilt and with this shame that we've never dealt with? It says they're in Great terror, verse 5, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. Now, how many of us are walking around racked with guilt and shame? Of course, what happens then is we start to live a life of fear. Isn't that the world that we live in today? A world that's filled with anxiety? We're afraid to do so many things. We turn on the news. We're overwhelmed with horror. Stories of doomsday declarations. You know, some of us are afraid of impending economic collapse. Some of us are afraid of war. We're afraid of fires. We're afraid of storms. We're afraid of extreme heat, extreme cold, or violence of viruses, of politicians, of strangers, of our neighbors, afraid of being around people, afraid of being alone. This is this culture that we live in. And, And what is our deepest fear? What are we really afraid of? So I think deep down, all of us are afraid of being exposed afraid of being seen for who we really are afraid of being shamed and rejected by the people that we love and and things just got deep there maybe something touched you but what i want to go is go here go to romans chapter 5 verse 6 through 11 see if you're afraid if you're ashamed if you're feeling guilty there is good news for you today And the good news is this, one, God sees you, two, God knows you, and three, God loves you. Okay, God sees through our facades, he knows what we've done, and yet God still loves us. This is what Romans 5 says, we're we're closing. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, the the late pastor Tim Keller said this. He said it so beautifully. The gospel is this we are more sinful, more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare hope. See, because we are sinners. Because we have been shamed, because we are guilty, God intervenes. See, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And maybe that is some of us today. I'll tell you in the weak and challenging moments of my life, that's still me today. Right, thinking, yes, there is a God, but living as if I need to work because God's not working on my behalf. But it's not enough to just believe that there is some Generic pie in the sky deity. I can't just cling to this generic he, she, it, her, them, whatever God might be, thinking that that God exists and doesn't care about me, because my world's in shambles and my family and my relationships are broken and my health is failing and my finances in ruin. I need something more than just a God. See, the Bible tells us that we need the God, the Father. I need the love of the Father who invites me into his family, who takes my shame upon himself, who gives me his honor and places it upon me so that I can know him. I can love him. I can rest in him. I can be secure in my identity in him. I need a God who takes that shame and guilt upon himself. I need a God that I can be with without feeling the pressure to strive and to work and perform. I need a God that looks a lot like Jesus who became sin for me to wake, to make that way for me so that I could be with him. Psalm closes like this. Oh, that salvation for Israel, that's God's people would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. See, we don't have to wait for this salvation to come. That salvation is here Today, freedom is here today, and his name is Jesus. He is strong when we are weak. He is free when we were slaves. He is infinite when we were finite. He has come to us. He has come for us just at the right time. See, we may be sinners, but we are still loved and accepted. And if we call on his name today, he calls us his sons and his daughters. He invites us into his family and gives us a home with him. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word shows us who we are. Lord, we can't hide behind the good things even that we do. Lord, you see right through those. You know our guilt. You know our shame. You know those things that no one else can see. And yet, you love us. This is incredible. That you so love the world, each and every one of us, that you would send Jesus to take the punishment and the shame that we deserve upon himself, so that we might know life abundantly in you. Lord, speak to us, work in us, allow us to secure this life with Jesus even today, we pray in his name, amen.